Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. It's great to see you this morning. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, We are going to talk about Jesus eating. Uh, And we have no archaeological evidence as to his table manners whether or not that was something that Jesus cared about or not. I thought about that. We live in a weird sort of society right now where, you know, we're kind of abandoning a lot of institutions and structures and systems and stuff like that. Table manners are kind of dead, aren't they? You used to have, like, a lot of, like, pride in yourself. If you knew which fork to pick up at the right time, you know, that was, like, an entire event. You used to go to trainings. If you were a kid, you'd go to, like, these schools. They had something called Cotillion near me. I never went, obviously. Uh, but you could go and uh, learn how to be fancy, and it really makes me think now, uh, we don't know. What do you think? This is like one of those weird, like, you know, kind of icebreaker questions. Did Jesus have good manners? He was all the time flaunting the conventions, right? He was saying, hey, you know, it's not about what's on the outside. It's about what's on the inside. So does that mean he was, like, tossing olives across the table so somebody could catch it in their mouth? I mean, we, the only real evidence that we have that's anywhere close is the Last Supper painting. I know that wasn't painted anywhere near Jesus actually living, but dude was like chilled out on a pillow, right? Like sort of leaning way back, like he was not, you know, sitting up close to the table and the other guys were kind of spread out too. So anyway, that bears no uh, meaning here nor there, but I just figured we'd start in thinking about that. The next thing I want you to think about is this very simple idea Um, that we're going to dive a little bit more deeply into today. And that is that Jesus is a big fan of the unlikely people. Today we're sort of combining two passages together. One of them, as I already sort of told you, is about Jesus eating. Jesus ate with these very unlikely people, sinners, tax collectors. But not only that, he also called them to be his followers. And it's very, very odd if you think about it, that here you have this guy. He's claiming to be the son of God. He is uh, here to change the world forever. He is here uh, to accomplish the will of God on earth. And he marches around, and he starts picking up these followers. And today we actually see him pick up this guy named Matthew. Uh, And you can see it in verse 9, actually. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, sharp-eyed and clever readers, like yourself, will see that this is actually the title of the book that we are reading, Matthew. Isn't that weird, right? Man, how strange is that? And you would be very, very sharp to see that. Traditionally, the church has attributed authorship of this book to this Matthew. Uh, Now, you know, in typical modern fashion, we've done all the research, and we're like, no, 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 you guys don't know anything about that. What's really interesting is we have found no archaeological or literary evidence to suggest that this is actually Matthew, but we have found no evidence to suggest that it wouldn't be Matthew. So that's kind of like an interesting thing, which really makes you call into question like the modern ways of thinking that we're like the early church, you know, like even as early as 60 years after this was written was like, yeah, it was this Matthew. This Matthew's the one that's writing it. Now, 2000 years later, we're like, nah, there's not really any evidence for that. We know better than they do, right? It's kind of silly. So uh, I'm going to go with probably Matthew. That's kind of my gut on this whole thing. We have no reason why not. I really like uh, that it seems like he would have the kind of skill set necessary to, to create a work like this. Being a tax collector meant that you were keeping records. It meant that you were like keeping track of things. You had some learning, some education. And so it would make very good sense that he would write this book. 
I also like this idea too, and we're gonna dive into this a little bit more, uh, but to be a tax collector was to be sort of like, you know, an outsider to the Jewish people. And, you know, if you want to just, we're building a lot of conjecture here. Okay, so bear with me. I'm sorry about this. But if you want to think about it this way, he was kind of like this guy. He was like a numbers guy, like tracking things. He like keeping things in order and everything. He was also an outsider for the Jews. So how odd would it be then that this guy would be the one gospel writer who more than the other ones is constantly quoting the Old Testament and is like, hey, you Jewish people that maybe didn't trust me because I was a tax collector. Here's all the evidence, hard evidence that I have from your Old Testament as to why this Jesus is the Messiah. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, Either way, he was one of Jesus' disciples who's called Levi elsewhere in the other Gospels. And the reason why he was such an unlikely candidate is not just that he worked for the IRS, uh, which I like that we have like an easy parallel for that these days, you know, like tax collector back then, IRS agent now. We all get it, right? We don't love these guys. Uh, But even back then, it was much, much worse, okay? I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking cap for just a minute. Uh, It's going to be a deep but brief rabbit trail. Are you ready for this? Imagine, imagine that the God of the universe promised the land that you're living in to Abraham, your ancestor. Then imagine that that Abraham goes there and then people leave there and they get enslaved in Egypt and then God through Moses frees them and then they wrestle control away of the land away from a much larger and much more wicked force that no one expected they ever could. Then the area, this same God-promised land, was contested for uh, hundreds of years by the largest military powers on the planet at the time, right? If you go into, like, you know, world history, this little pocket was the part that was fought over by uh, Alexander the Great, uh, by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians, and now the Romans, right? You have some cool moments where, like, the king of the Babylonians sends an envoy back uh, to rebuild the kingdom and establish Israel uh, in both Ezra and Nehemiah until eventually the Romans come in, they take over your land. Now it feels like Israel is once and forever fully conquered. Now all of a sudden this, pl- this land that God promised to you and your ancestors is now completely dominated by the most powerful force that have, may have ever seen uh, this planet. And then they hire a guy uh, to take over. They hired a guy named Herod to serve as governor over the area. He's widely considered to be a self-indulgent fool. Herod does not uh, show well in history, and it's not just biblical history either. Uh, In fact, if you look at there's a Jewish historian named Josephus, uh, this guy is not well loved by him. So this guy, this Herod, is in charge of the promised land, He is the occupying force. He is your wicked governor, and he starts putting taxes down on you. So you already don't trust this guy. You don't like this guy. He starts laying down taxes on you. And instead of collecting them himself, instead of sending out Roman soldiers to collect them, he decides it would be a good idea to find Jewish people to to take taxes on other Jewish people. Matthew was just one of those people. One of your brothers fellow child of Abraham, child of the promise, patiently awaiting the coming Messiah and the return of the rule of God, just like you are. That guy starts taking taxes from the enemy. Not only that, but it was common practice, and in fact, it was even encouraged for this guy to then skim his income off the top. Herod just wanted a certain amount, any amount that you could get over that, uh, you could keep for yourself. 
this is the guy that Jesus sees and says, follow me. Jesus looks at him and he says, this is the type of guy I want following me. This is the type of guy I want around me and leading my people. This is the guy I want to write the first book of the New Testament. This is the guy that I want to take special attention to the fact that I am the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. This is going to be my guy. This is the guy that I want to be the one who can tell these Jewish religious leaders, the true Jews, I want this guy to tell them how they can actually read Scripture. I mean, think about the sort of reversal there. Somebody who's ostracized and even opposed in some ways to his own culture, to his own bloodline, to his own family, would be the one to announce particularly, more than the other three gospel books, particularly to the Jewish people, how Jesus is actually their Messiah. This is nuts, but it is not out of the ordinary. This is how God likes to work through history, through unlikely candidates. Now, I'm not going to say that there's not some likely candidates in the Bible. There's plenty of those as well. But it's astounding how many people there are in the Bible that you would look at and you would say, man, I don't even want this guy, like, in charge of washing my car or something like that. I don't even trust this guy enough with something simple. Moses was a stuttering murderer chosen to lead his people. David was the youngest and smallest of his brothers when he was called to be the giant slayer and king. Paul, possibly the most important Christian of the early church, was in the business of killing Christians before he came to follow Jesus. This should tell us something about the way that God works. And if that's true, maybe it ought to tell us two things. One, maybe we ought to think twice about writing someone or writing off how God can use us. You know, very often, if you have, like, a healthy estimation of yourself, you might say to yourself, like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I'm the one that needs to be doing that. I don't think that I am the guy for this moment. I don't think I am the girl for this time. But the truth is, that may be exactly the way that God wants to work in and through your life. That may be exactly the way that he wants you to feel, the same way that Matthew, the tax collector, reviled by his people, probably felt when Jesus said, come and follow me. The second thing this tells us is we probably ought to be a little less judgmental about the people that Jesus might be calling. We need to be careful that we never write off anyone from coming to Jesus. There's a temptation, I feel like, to see one of your friends and be like, man, I'd like it if they know Jesus, but for all of these reasons that I can think of, they would never actually come and follow Jesus. And if you read even a small amount of scripture, you can see that that's not true, and that's not the way that God thinks about people. That's not the way that God works in their lives. That guy that you hang out with that you're just sure will never come to Jesus, that could be David. That could be Paul. That could be Matthew. I actually knew a Matthew one time. Uh, his name was actually Ryan, so that part's confusing. But uh, I knew a guy, and uh, man, I met this guy. And he, uh, we were living in New Orleans. This was probably 10 years ago now, maybe around that time. Uh, Ryan was just a crazy, crazy guy. He was into all kind of just wild stuff. Uh, and he was also like getting his master's in philosophy. So he was like super, super smart. Uh, and love to just get into all kind of craziness, right, and all this stuff. And I had all these reasons where I was like, well, I mean, he'll probably never come to know Jesus, right? Like, it's too crazy, all this stuff. Like, there's no way. I thought to myself, he's too wild for this. He's too smart for this. Uh, he's too set in his own ways. He's too worldly. He's too flighty. Whatever it might be, I thought all of these things. And so I'm there in New Orleans, and I'm like thinking to myself, like, this guy's never going to follow Jesus. But I talked to him about Jesus anyway, and he's interested. He's curious, right? 
but nothing ever happens. I even have this one trip where I like sneak myself into a road trip and uh, share the gospel with them for eight hours. It was like a full-on blitz. I was like, let's get it. At the end of this car ride, uh, he will accept Jesus just so I'll stop talking, right? Like that was the goal, you know? So I'm like talking to him about Jesus, talking to him about Jesus, nothing. And then uh, for a long time, our paths like split apart. I didn't see him for probably three or four years. He shows up in Denver one day and like we start hanging out again. He even starts plugging in with our church. We hadn't launched well yet at that time. Uh, it plugs in, is a part of our core team um, where he's hearing the gospel all the time. And still nothing is happening. He's making no real sort of movement. I feel like he starts to get close. I'm thinking like maybe something is happening in his life, but nothing really happening. And then right before, a week before he launches, or we launch as a church, he moves away and our paths diverge again. He's gone for years and years and years. And every once in a while we sort of check in and talk to each other, but nothing's really happening. And I think to myself like, man, I have tried as hard as I possibly can. Ryan is never going to come to know Jesus. And one day he calls me up. It was the middle of the pandemic, if you guys remember that. Uh, and uh, he says that he's sitting in his, or he was sitting in his office one day He's all alone in there, and it was one of the loneliest he's ever felt. And he looks across the street, and there is a church there, and there are people going in and out. Nobody was going anywhere at the time. And so uh, he says, you know what? The last time that I actually had, like, good relationships, the last time that I actually had really good friends was when I was a part of this weird little dwell church core team. You guys remember the days we were a church but not a church. We were meeting, meeting in a wedding, wedding co-working space. It was super, super strange. And Ryan says to himself, you know what? That was the last time I felt really, really connected. And so he marches into this church. Two weeks later, accepts Jesus. Uh, weeks after that, actually meets what would one day be his wife, uh, gets married. And now the two of them, the reason why he called me up one day was not even to tell me all of this. He was like, hey, I'm passing through Denver. Can I stay at your house? Uh, and he was on his way. Now he and his wife are like leading some ministry up in South Dakota and really, really following Jesus with everything that they have, which is amazing, right? Now he's still crazy. I want to like make sure that that is true. Jesus doesn't always fix crazy. Uh, Jesus doesn't change who you are completely when you come to know him. But it's astounding because in my life, like now I have two distinct moments where I had written Ryan off thinking like, well, that's the end. He doesn't have Josh Cook around anymore to share the gospel with him. Surely he's never going to become a Christian. All of these other reasons why he might never follow Jesus, there is no hope for him. How foolish was I to even think, A, that I could judge who could become a Christian and who couldn't, or to think that I held his sort of fate in my hands. I hope you see in that story, there was like six years in between when I first shared the gospel with him and when it actually took root in his life. And I wonder who else is in our lives right now that we are saying, hey, they're probably not going to come to Jesus, so I'm not even going to share with them. But Matthew wasn't the only odd person that Jesus was hanging out with. Verse 10 says this, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, see, sitting back from the table, not sitting up straight, telling you Jesus was not a manners guy. Anyway, uh, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I want you to recognize that to share a meal is actually a holy thing. You know, there's something kind of like supernatural. I'm sure you felt it before. You ever felt that sitting around the table with other people? 
you're somehow like uh, sustaining your life, right? You're providing yourself with food. You're providing yourself with a way to be able to just continue on living. But you're also sharing life together. You're doing that alongside other people. It's a holy thing. It's a sacred thing. But it's also something that can change you, something that can shape you. And if you eat with dirty people, you get dirty. And I'm sure you guys all know the dirty people that I'm talking about. Kids. They're disgusting. Have you ever eaten with a kid before? It's gross. And you're going to get gross, right? Like, it's just going to happen. The other night we had, uh, we had group at uh, Taylor and Katie's house. And I looked up. Evie, like, got off the couch. And there was, like, a cloud of crumbs and an outline of her on the couch right there. And their couch is destroyed forever. Kids are dirty, right? And if you eat with dirty people, you are going to get dirty. That's just kind of the nature of what happens when you're eating with dirty people. The religious leaders actually saw eating with these types of people as not just making them sort of physically dirty. It's, they saw it as making them spiritually dirty. That like their souls were unclean if they sat at table with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus saw it the exact opposite way. He said, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing here. Jesus, you see, eats with everyone. It was his plan. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just sort of like a byproduct. This was plan A for Jesus. He wanted to eat with everyone. He wanted to say, hey, who are the people that you wouldn't dream of eating with? That is who I am going to eat with. I like this a lot, that it's like what we know about these people is like Matthew was a tax collector, and it says Jesus ate with tax collectors and also sinners. Who were these people that they're just like labeled as like sinners? Those are the sinners that Jesus was eating with. Jesus was, oh, he's over at the sinner's house tonight. That's what, they're having a pot roast, right? Like, that's crazy. The sinners, that's who it said that Jesus was actually eating with. Jesus was the lust grab food kind of friend, right? That guy after you've like been at a game or gone to a movie or something that's like, hey, what if instead of we went home, if we just all went and grabbed a burrito? And don't you love that guy? Like, isn't that image of Jesus one of the sweetest that you've ever seen before? If he's like, hey, let's grab some food, man. That's a great guy. That's who Jesus was. And can I shoehorn in a little bit of a soapbox just for one moment? I, I, I'm asking you to begrudge me just this little thing. We once had someone leave Dwell Church because they didn't get invited to lunch. Now, there are a lot of other details here, and that's grossly oversimplifying the actual sort of reasons. There were lots of them. But the catalyzing event that I think led to all of this was a sort of like feeling of being snubbed or rejected and trying to grab lunch afterwards. Now, what I typically do, uh, or what I, I have historically done when someone leaves the church is I take it completely on myself. I get mad, and then I go through the five stages of grief, mad, sad, and angry, acceptance, Rejection. I don't even know what they are. Anyway, uh, I just would lose it. Uh, for two reasons, I think I've gotten like a little bit better at it. I'm in a better place now. You guys are all free to leave if you'd like. Uh, but uh, I'm in a better place for two reasons. One is I really feel like God's been sanctifying me in that, and now I like understand sort of my role, his role in the universe a little bit better. The second reason is just practice, right? People leave, it happens. I'm getting pretty good at it, actually. Every time, I just get a little bit better. And so now, what I do every time someone that leaves uh, is that I'll sit down. I'd love to just sort of hear. This is coaching you in case you want to leave. Uh, I'd love to sit down and hear why you want to leave Dwell Church, what we've done wrong. And I try and take an honest assessment. Because at the end of the day, there is something to be learned from every time someone decides to go to another church. And that's fine. Sometimes God leads people to that. I don't want to, like, you know, 
uh, don't want to make that sound like that's impossible to happen. And as I was like thinking through this and really like processing what this is, I realized that at first glance, you may say, well, someone didn't get invited to lunch and that feels a little like middle school, right? You're like, oh man, they didn't get to sit at the cool kid table, something like that. And like there was a temptation, probably a selfish and prideful temptation in me just to distance myself from that and be like, well, they're crazy. That doesn't make any sense. They're, you know, just grow up a little or something like that. The more and more I thought about it, the more and more I thought, is this the type of community that the community of Jesus should actually be? Right? Like, like, do you think if we're actually all looking and acting or at least trying to look and act like Jesus that this kind of thing would ever happen? I mean, look at the people that Jesus was actually eating lunch with. Do you really think on an after church Sunday morning kind of like let's all go to lunch that someone would ever really feel this way if we had a church full of Jesuses? Would Jesus ever leave anyone out for lunch? I don't think so. And it really gives us actually sort of an advantage over the world because the world is always going to do this. Actually, uh, one of the, there's a sixth grader that I know that lives nearby us, and he came by. We had a yard sale yesterday. He popped over. He just started sixth grade. I was like, hey, man, how is, how's sixth grade going? Do you like elementary school better or middle school? He's like, I like elementary better. You know, middle has too much drama. And I was like, you're a sixth grade boy. What are you talking Like, I didn't even know you knew the word. I didn't know the word drama when I was in sixth grade, right? That's just like the way that the world works. There's going to be a cool kid table and a not cool kid table. There's going to be a table you want to be at and a table you don't want to be at. That's not how the community of Jesus works. Man, and we love thinking of these really like transformative ideas of like, man, what if we just like saved the world? What if like because of people who followed Jesus, there were no more kids that were orphaned? What if we like people who love Jesus, like what if we solved world hunger? Wouldn't that be a great thing? Can I just suggest that it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if even all that we achieved was a, a sort of like tearing down of that lunchroom mentality? Like what if the community of Jesus was one where there was always an open spot at the table for every single person? What if the community of Jesus was known for being able to eat with everyone and with anyone? What if we actually looked a little bit more like Jesus? What would happen to our world, man? I don't know. Anyway, sorry, soapbox over. Back to your regularly scheduled sermon. Uh, sometimes the best thing that you can actually do to be a part of Jesus' ongoing mission to save the world is to share a meal with someone. The best part is it doesn't take any training. Uh, if you eat food, you're technically equipped for this. I think you have all that you need. If you like Jesus and you eat food, then you're ready. But who are these people that you need to be eating with? First step is you should find out where the city tax assessor's office is, and you should sit outside of that around like 1130 uh, and just wait. You know, they're coming out for lunch. I think you could catch them. No, uh, I think what would be really helpful for us to do is actually just think through who are the people that you wouldn't naturally eat with? Who are the people that you think of as unclean, right? We don't even know who these quote-unquote sinners were, and I don't think that we have some sort of parallel to, like, the people who are abandoning the culture and, you know, working against us or anything like that. But basically, Jesus was eating with people that the rest of the world saw as untouchable. Man, and if you've never actually done that, it's a transformative experience. To share a meal. Uh, we have opportunities even at Dwell to, to eat with people who might be a little bit different from you. We've done different events and done different things. I remember one of the coolest moments was uh, when we were doing like, a, we used to do these sort of potluck dinners or like 
cookouts over at the VOA. Volunteers of America is like a home or a, a motel for people that were transitioning out of homelessness. And to be able to hear someone's story, uh, A, is better while you're eating, you know, a hamburger, right? Like it just sort of works out better. We start to flow a little bit better. But B, is not only transformative, hopefully, for them, but it's transformative for you. That in getting to share a meal with someone that you wouldn't normally interact with can actually be life-changing. If you feel like that might be too high of a hurdle, if you feel like you can't uh, actually find an opportunity to share a meal with someone that different from you, instead, find a sinner, which is good, because there's one, and there's one, and here's one, and they're everywhere, right? Uh, we believe here at Dwell Church that the Bible teaches us that all have actually sinned, that we all are working against God's good promises, and it's only by the grace of God that we might experience a right relationship with him. And so it doesn't mean that if you're sitting here in this room or that you're following Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, that you are not a sinner. It just means that you have accepted the grace of Jesus for your sin. And so the difference in people who might be in here in what we'd call an in crowd and people who might be out there is not that the people in here are not sinners and those people out there are sinners. It's more so these are sinners who are aware of and accepting God's good grace for their lives. And there are people out there who are sinners just as well who don't yet know the good news of Jesus Christ, who don't know that their sin can be forgiven. I believe those are the people that God is calling us to share a meal with. Have them over. Talk about Jesus. Eat food. It's really that simple. I believe that hospitality might be the evangelistic front door for our generation of the church. All right. Last point. Here we go. Then Jesus said this, verse 12. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I'm sure uh, for those of you guys who have been around for a while that you remember that uh, Jesus here is quoting Hosea 6.6. 6. Remember when we did all the way through the book of Hosea, how crazy that was? That was weird. I actually looked back through and checked. I was trying to cheat on this sermon and like, you know, just pull from a previous one. And so I went back through and found Hosea 6. We didn't even talk about this verse at all. We're going to have to go back through Hosea. I hope you guys are ready. Like we missed it completely. The one verse that Jesus quotes from Hosea 6.6, 6, we skipped completely. All right. It's terrible. I don't know if you remember, it was that one crazy week we did Hosea 4 through 10. It was kind of a lot. So maybe we have some reason to skip it, but still that's messed up. So Hosea 2.0, get ready. It's coming after Christmas. Maybe we'll do it for Christmas. That was really uh, a Christmassy kind of book, right? What Jesus says here that he's quoting from Hosea is, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's a direct quote from Hosea 6.6. 6. Jesus here is talking to the religious Jewish elite, and he's actually using their own prophets against them. They would have known Hosea. The Pharisees, the people that were controlling the, you know, religious direction of Israel at the time, would have known what this means. And ironically enough, Jesus does something else kind of like subtle here. He says, go and learn what this means, which is a common phrase used by Pharisees as they were leading their own disciples. They would say to someone, go and learn what this means. And then what would happen is their disciple would have to sort of like leave and go and study. Their disciple would say something really profound, like, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then they would say, all right, go and figure out what that means. And their disciple would have to, or the, yeah, the disciple would have to go out 
and sort of study, learn, work, maybe try and practice some of these things just to find out what the, the sort of leader was telling them what to do, right? So Jesus, here talking to the Pharisees, knows that they use this phrase, and he's actually saying it to them, saying it back to them. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is saying, when you finally understand what the prophet Hosea said hundreds of years ago, you will be able to understand why I eat with sinners and what I am trying to do here today. So we must ask, what does it mean? Well, Hosea 6, 6 says this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now you'll notice there one of the words is really different. Uh, steadfast love as opposed to mercy. So it's steadfast love in the Greek or in the Hebrew, and then when it translates to the New Testament, it becomes mercy. But the reason for this translation, I believe, is because this is a notoriously difficult word to translate into even English. This word in the Hebrew uh, means something more like loving kindness. So not just kindness and not just love, but the two of them put together, which kind of feels like love put into action in some way, right? Like kindness is kind of too small a thing to do. That's just kind of like, oh, he did something nice. How nice is that? Uh, love can be kind of abstract sometimes where it's like, oh, I love that person, but what am I really doing for them? Loving kindness, putting those two words together, seems to me to be action-oriented. Here Jesus is saying loving kindness is what God desires more than all of your sacrifices. Loving kindness more than burnt offerings. Loving kindness more than all of your pharisaical piety. Loving kindness more than the work that you are trying to accomplish by trying to please God by looking good or acting good or doing good. I want to also make something clear uh, that I think we don't understand because we're not ancient Jewish people. Uh, this is not an A or B kind of a scenario. But Jesus here is letting you know to prioritize A over B. Jesus is saying here that loving kindness is more important than the religious things that the Pharisees were doing. Jesus is saying here that the work of eating with sinners is more important than their work of piety. So, knowing all of that, let's look at it again in context. Verse 12, when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus here does two things. First, he sets the tone that these people that he's eating with are sick and sinners. Those are the two words he uses to describe the people that he's eating with. We tend to think in our modern culture that we have to deny or minimize that something does, someone does something wrong in order to love them. Jesus doesn't do that here. That's kind of an interesting thing if you think about it. In fact, I think, uh, at least in my own experience, that it feels very often that the only way that I can actually love someone is to tell them that they are doing everything right and they have never done anything wrong. This does not seem in keeping with the gospel. In fact, the gospel is only good news if you know you've done something wrong, right? There's some complexity there. So I say, if I may be so bold and possibly pretentious, go and learn what this means. A gospel without recognition of wrongdoing is no gospel at all. Or as Paul says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Second, Jesus tells us something that should be a challenge to us about how we spend 
our resources of our lives. Jesus says, I am not here for the churchy people. I am not here for the inside crowd. I am not here uh, for those people who do everything right. I am here for the sinners. I am here for the least of these. I am here for the sick. I am here for the outsiders. I am here for the people that you have rejected. And the question that we naturally have to ask ourselves is which one of those groups of people do we actually hang out with more? Jesus tells us the priority for him. He said, I've come for the sick. I've come for the sinner. I actually, uh, over the past couple weeks, have had a, a plumber, an electrician, and a furnace guy come over to my house. Uh, it's been great. Love it. Uh, I don't know what these guys do. I thought they worked hourly, but they love talking to me. And so uh, we hang out and talk for a long time. And uh, one guy I got to talk to for probably, you know, like 20 minutes about the difference between different denominations and Jehovah's Witness and Mormons and just all over the place, right? Uh, two out of three of these guys we actually talked to about Jesus. Uh, one of them, uh, the, the sort of longest and I think best conversation, he said, I'm le reading Lord of the Rings right now, and I've heard that there's a lot of biblical references. And I was like, buddy, you don't know the house you just walked into. You better look out. I hope you don't plan on leaving today. He said, I heard there's a lot of biblical references. I think I might read the Bible so I can understand Lord of the Rings more. And I was like, praise the Lord, J.R.R. Tolkien, still doing it, man. I love this so much. Man, <clears throat> it made me remember something that I really had forgotten. It made me realize, too, that combined with reading this sermon, man, I hang out with too many churchy people. No offense to you guys, you're great. I like you a lot. Most of my coworkers are Christian, even all of them, maybe. <laughs> yeah, there was a little, like, there was kind of uncomfortable at most. Who's he talking about? Ray Anna, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, uh, my coworkers are all Christian. Uh, so much of the people that I'm living constantly in community with are all Christian. It made me realize in talking to these three guys, two out of three of the which had a serious question about Jesus. I mean, the, the guy that we discussed the different denominations and stuff, I just said, I'm a pastor. And he said, I don't know anything about that. And we talked for 20 minutes about that. And it made me realize, like, it's weird. I often look at my friends in the same way that I might have looked at Matthew if I was Jesus. And I say, well, you know, I know that person doesn't know Jesus, but they probably don't want to talk about it. That'd be weird, right? Uh, I know that person, I don't really know them all that well, and so I don't want to bring up this like super uncomfortable topic. And here are these people standing in my basement messing with my furnace, and we're talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. We're talking at first about Aragorn and then skipping right there to Jesus, right? Like, it's astounding to think about, like, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a weird sort of uncomfortable situation of being put into interactions like that. I don't know what it is, but people, I think, want to talk about this at some level. Now, not everyone. Some people might make them uncomfortable. It's not like we need to be just, you know, pounding down everybody's door and be like, hey, I know you were thinking about your eternal salvation. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit more. But I think, man, if any of this is true, like if Jesus, the Bible, the whole scheme, if it's true at all, then there is something hardwired into every single person that has ever lived on the planet that wants to talk about it. There may be walls, there may be barriers, there may be things that make people uncomfortable, there may be cultural reasons why we don't like to talk about it. But I think at our heart, like deep down in our soul, every single person is longing for exactly the same thing. 
and that is the love and forgiveness and acceptance of Jesus Christ. So, this is a little bit of a choose-your-own-adventure. What do you want to do now? It's completely up to you. You have options. Uh, you can do an archaeological search on the manners of Jesus if you want, uh, and then write me an email as to how I was wrong on that. Uh, you might need to repent of your pharisaical ways. I know that's an obnoxious word to use. Uh, your ways which are like the Pharisees, right? Do you need to start loving people more than taking pride in your own religiosity? That's at least one takeaway from this. Do you need to do the simple work of inviting someone to lunch? I'm hoping someone does that for me today. Do you need to pray more for and share Jesus with that friend you had written off? Do you need to actually like sit down and take stock of that guy that you were like, oh man, at one point I was praying for him all the time and one time I shared the gospel with him but we haven't talked about it since but we still hang out every weekend. Do you need to re-begin praying for that guy, sharing Jesus with that friend that you had written off that you said, hey, they're never gonna come to know Jesus. They're wild, they're out there, they're too crazy. There's no way that they could follow Jesus. Do you need to look at them the same way that Matthew or that Jesus looked at Matthew? And the final question that you need to ask yourself and ask yourself very seriously is, do you need this Jesus? Do you feel at some level like this Matthew uh, saying, man, I know that I'm not the most likely candidate, but yet you feel this weird tug from Jesus on your heart that you say, hey, I actually need that good news. It's not that I need to pass that good news on to somebody else. I need to know that I am forgiven. I need to know that I am accepted by God. I need to know that I am going to enjoy eternal life with him forever. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.